The world's burning. <laughs> Blow it up. <laughs> so, okay, we're good. All right, let's boogie, man. Did you just use the word boogie? I did. Yeah. I'm bringing you're, it back. You're turning into I mean, a father. So there's things that you're going to say as a father. Uh, you know, Andrew will be able to tell you this. There's things you're going to say as a father, like boogie and poopy and all these kind of things that it's going to be a whole new world. And when you say him, somebody's going to be like, oh, yeah, he's a dad. Right? So Yeah, I just had a kid about seven weeks ago. Yeah. So much so that he's still calling it a kid instead of a child. Right? He thinks it's a baby goat. <laughs> well, he, he is in the luggage phase. Okay. I think Brent did it last week. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Hot Isle. I am one of your hosts, Brian Carpenter, and with me I have... Brent Piotti, good everything to you. Yeah, Brent, I'm so glad. Hey, thanks for putting on clothes, by the way, bro. Hey, every time, man. I've not been on a podcast yet where I don't have... I'm not fully clothed. (laughs) This uh, That's actually not true. But this week we have with us none other than Andrew Clay Schaefer. Well, hello there. Howdy. Man, that sounded hot. So, Andrew, uh, you know, we're going to try to get your name right. And, and Brent and I have been joking. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard all the jokes, right? Like, I was like, you know, I was going to call you Mr. Dice Clay a bunch and just see if I could get your name wrong. But we're going to try to get your name right and uh, go all the way through. Do you prefer, like, is that actually a thing you've, have you always gone by all three names? Is that like a branding thing for you? Or why do we do Andrew Clay Schaefer? The, well, one, that's what my parents named me. But uh, <laughs> Very the, good. my main motivation, actually, and this is uh maybe a little insight into my psychology is I, for a while, if I searched for Andrew Schaefer, I wasn't the top hit on Google. But if I, if I started adding this, then I, I, you know, I could find myself. Mm-hmm. And so then I, I ended up with uh, that. And then, you know, if people from my elementary school, maybe junior high days, a lot of them call me Andy. That's what a lot of my kind of, you know, early friends and, and some family call me. And then I've had I've gone by Drew, I've gone by Clay, because Andrew's not always a, a rare name. Like sometimes you'll end up in a room, there'll be three Andrews. So then you know I just opted to do something else, and so I'm not really attached to the name, but I just started putting it out, out there, and then people start saying it, and I'm not going to stop them. Yeah. yeah, my parents only called me by all three names when I was in trouble, so I didn't mm-hmm. know if like you're announcing, "Hey, I'm trouble, I'm here," you know. Uh, that. That might be a part of the psychology as well. <laughs> well, and to, to, introduce the, to, to introduce everybody else more uh, a bit to Andrew, uh, one thing is we have to be careful this uh, today for the next hour or so. Um, I understand you have some triggers um, that really kind of set yeah. you off. Uh, You're <laughs> tweeting like crazy yeah. uh, on uh, all of your trigger words. And, and what was it? Continuous delivery. So don't, don't freak out. Microservices, 12-factor, auto-scaling, platform as a service, like, this is all we're going to talk about today. Are you going to like shut down, or are we going to be okay here? I don't actually have fragile sensibilities, uh, and and my strategy on Twitter is basically to be my own parody account. So that's just me kind of throwing stuff out there. That's uh, <laughs> you know the the words of the day, if you will. Yeah, you dude, you definitely throw stuff out there. Thirty, you know, coming up on thirty three thousand tweets. That's that's impressive. I mean, if you actually look at the length of time I've been on Twitter, I'm not that prolific, but I definitely participate in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And we just, okay. So everybody on Twitter for the next hour or so, well, frankly, it's not live, but if he does quiet down for the next hour and a half or so, it's just because he was being nice and trying to give us a hundred percent of his attention. So that was, it's very kind of him. I noticed by the way, when we were warming up that you were, you were actually tweeting. I'm glad you didn't say anything about how we screwed up the first intro. 
<laughs> is probably fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a little bit about you again, the goal of this show, this show, we're going to talk a bit about platform as a service and some of the things you guys are doing over at, uh, at Pivotal, um, cloud foundry and even cloudfoundry.org and the open source version, um, stuff. We want to discuss a little bit about the culture that makes DevOps successful Again, something that you were, uh, very, you know, you have a very keen opinion on. Um, and we're probably also going to break down a little bit about how configuration management, uh, and what value tools like puppet and other things similar to puppet may have in people's world. Uh, and that's just kind of a short list of what we're doing. Um, Andrew is, uh, coming to us. He's currently senior director of technology at pivotal. Is that the current correct title of you? You're not like the ambassador of happiness or anything. I was trying to get Herald of Galactus um, on my cards, but it's it's sufficiently vague. It works. Uh, and, and coming before Pivotal, let's see, did you come to Pivotal from, was it Rackspace or did you come? Uh, I had actually been doing some independent consulting. I was mostly, you know, kind of as I was alluding to right before we started, I spent a lot of time with my kids and uh, I came to Pivotal because... My uh, my friend and now my boss James Waters coaxed me to uh, come help him try to build this thing. Thanks, James. And so all these things you're working on, you're working with Rackspace. We had uh, somebody from their um, Object Rocket on a couple of, a couple episodes ago. Uh, also, have worked with cloud scaling. Uh, Randy Bias had nothing to say about you, so I don't know what you paid him to do that. <laughs> so going, I mean, going back in time, basically. I was the last W two I had was from Rackspace. Uh, before that, I was uh, vice president of engineering uh, in the early days of cloud scaling, and we did a lot of the work that cloud scaling uh, got known for at uh, Korea Telecom and um, some of the stuff that there's press releases about uh, on cloud, CloudStack and OpenStack. And then uh, before that, I was uh, co-founder of Puppet Labs. And then going back to basically 2004. I'd been doing some kind of venture-funded startup uh, as a developer. Cool. So, senior director of technology, a vague title. What do you do, man? What I mean, when you go to work every day, what do you what are you doing at Pivotal? I mean, basically, my job right now at Pivotal is just to get a team of unicorns. <laughs> so, I try to hire the most technical people that I can get to come to Pivotal, and then I turn them into. Uh, developer and operator advocates. So if you look at the people on my team right now, I just hired a guy, uh, Casey West, who had a, a director of engineering position in hand from one of the big CDNs that people might have heard of before. And I convinced him to come help us uh, work on the technical community. He's really focused on the open source stuff. And he's also just a really great uh, guy and, and engineer. Uh, I just hired Bridget Kromhout, who came right off of giving the, the talk and an encore performance of the talk at OSCON about running Docker in production. So she, she talked about you know, Docker and her experiences and then turned around and, and joined my team to, to work on building up the Cloud Foundry ecosystem. I also have a bunch of uh, Spring advocates, so uh, Josh Long and these other guys. So like my, my team basically is focused on playing with all the toys that Pivotal has and then telling everyone about how cool all the technical toys are. And so my philosophy about this is basically you get the best marketing in 2015 in a world where you have GitHub and Twitter and the rest of this by getting authentic uh, engineering voices in the conversation that can, that can be credible and relevant having a discussion about any of those topics. 
That's that's actually really cool, and uh, that's one of the things we did with Object Rocket was we had one of their developer advocates on, um, and I've also talked to somebody over at uh, Basho who is a developer advocate over there. It seems to be a very uh, a a popular thing, frankly, Um, but obviously it's working for people. I mean, I think it's a transition in the way that technology is being bought and sold. I think in a world where information travels so quickly and so freely, that having relevant and credible information. Uh, is a is a competitive advantage, and so that's what uh, I'm focused on trying to provide for for Pivotal's kind of technology ecosystems. Sure. So speaking of you know just kind of the 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 developer ecosystem, and you're you're a, you're a code guy. Um, we do a segment uh, every week called This Week in Tech History, which I think you'll be uh, interested to know. Uh, back in September um, of 1954, the first Fortran program was executed. So you probably know Fortran as the uh, the IBM mainframe kind of code, um, but it uh, quickly became the most dominant programming language uh, for scientific and engineering applications, and still used today, especially in areas of high performance computing. So my question to you: What was uh, have you used Fortran first of all, um, and then so, what was the first language you really learned? Um, so my bachelor degree is in mathematics, and then I did a master's program in. Uh, it's called computational engineering and science, and I did lots of uh, programming in uh, linear algebra, which is all all the best kind of linear algebra libraries are still basically Fortran from you know thirty forty years ago. Oh, so wow. lots of uh, lots of Fortran. Although you know by the time I got to it, uh, most of the work was done in in C and C plus plus linking to the the Fortran to do the the heavy lifting. But yeah, I did some Fortran. It's kind of funny, like every time we have guests on these, like this week in tech history, actually lines up to with to stuff that people are actually have done in their past or are currently doing now. It's it's actually pretty pretty cool how that works out. Yeah, so especially, especially when we had the venture capital dude who was doing uh, business with the Russians. Nice. Yeah, it, it always works. So, so what what we did with uh, that is what my kind of research focus was uh, building models, mathematical models of uh, bioelectric fields in the torso from the from the heart and the brain, and so you you make a like a physical model, and then you represent mathematically the electric potential anywhere in the volume. I don't know, it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds sounds amazing. I come, you know, my my mind is blown. Is uh, it? So it's like you build a, a finite element uh, model of the you tessellate the torso or whatever, and then you solve the equation for Maxwell's equations at any point in the torso. Simultaneously, so you basically build a bid matrix and then let the Fortran libraries chew on it until you get an answer, and then um, visualize the visualize the results. Yeah, all just, I heard in there was matrix, and I just saw like the green numbers and symbols falling in front of my face. Yeah, everything I, else. Was I felt like, like I'm cloudy in a chance of meatballs. He was like, blah blah blah, science science science, <laughs> bigger, it's like, bigger. Dude, so way too smart. <laughs> so, uh, is there something like you, you, we've we've been. I've seen you and other people talking about Go recently. Is there something, uh, I mean, you talk about development languages and things like that. Is Go something that's resonating with you? Is it resonating with the community? What's the value of it? Uh, Go is an interesting thing to watch. Uh, for people who don't know, it's a relatively new language. Kind of came out of some efforts at Google as, as kind of a replacement, a system language, competitive. I don't think it ever you know, fully replaces C, but kind of in the same vein where you have a, a compiled language that you can run on a bunch of different places, a bunch of different architectures. I think Go has sort of taken over 
this new generation of, of, of system management tools. So you look across the board, uh, you know, Cloud Foundries essentially Go now. I mean, there's still bits of Ruby here and there, but mostly Go. Uh, the guys uh, over at, at HashiCorp are doing a lot of Go. CoreOS is doing a lot of Go. Kubernetes is Go. Like all these sort of new uh, generation of, of system tools are, are Go-centric. Um, I don't see tons of it in the app side of stuff, but definitely in the systems work, I've seen lots of Go. So is that is is that because Go is is better for those types of of tools uh, or applications, or is it just uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about that that world to be completely conversant. To be honest with you, oh, here's the deal, and I say this uh, in more than one context that most of technology is driven by fashion and tribalism, and so certainly there's there's some uh, interesting qualities of that language that makes it good for some work, but I'm not sure that all these choices are necessarily based on like some objective measure. It's just like they kind of get momentum, and then everyone sort of supports that. So if you see the, you know, comparison to something like like Ruby, which you know the the puppet and chef work was mostly Ruby, then uh, at least initially, uh, a lot of that's been rewritten um, on both sides now. But the the performance of a compiled language versus an interpreted language is like a hundred to a thousand times faster, right? And so you don't have to go around and, and put the Ruby interpreter on a machine. You can just put the, the binary, it's, it's, it's uh, compiled down to machine code or whatever, and you can just run it without installing compilers or interpreters. And that's pretty convenient to be able to just, basically if you can um, you know, SCP uh, some bits onto a machine, like all of a sudden you have all this power. And that's, that's a little more flexibility um, for a kind of like managing these systems than, than that old language. So it's both more performant, and I think it's operationally um, simplified compared to the to the interpreted language. And that, so you, what, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, and that kind of uh, that actually kind of lines up a bit with what I do know about uh, you know these these PaaS type environments and other things that we're working with, where it's you don't need to have this preset environment that somebody creates and hands to a developer for them to be able to go do their thing. In other words, you don't have to have Ruby there in order to be able to go do something with Ruby. You're saying you can go ahead and have it compiled and execute kind of anywhere at any time. Is that well? So there's a there's there's a couple things. So you mentioned one of my trigger words, but the <laughs> the way that the way the Cloud Foundry works is you have build packs that are language specific. Uh, so you have this sort of vetted community vetted way to make sure Ruby will run, and it can definitely run Ruby. Uh, we run tons of Ruby. Uh, we run tons of Node.js. Um, all these different sort of interpreted languages. But then with, with Go and then other things uh, like Spring Boot, then the deployable artifact doesn't, doesn't depend so much on a bunch of this environment stuff, and you can just kind of deploy that thing by itself, and it will run. Okay. Right, so, so with Go, and I don't know if you guys have played around with um, you know, any of the stuff from HashiCorp or any of the stuff like Lattice or whatever, like these, all these little projects. You basically just download the file, and then you, all of a sudden you have the tool. Like, there's not really an installer. I was just reading Matt Stein's uh, a Lattice presentation that he must have given the last couple of weeks um, at a spring conference today on LinkedIn. So I'm learning Lattice a bit. I've seen the name before, but today was the first actual read into it. So Lattice is, is the container scheduler uh, capabilities. It's, it's, it's three things, really, three, three little things. So it's the uh, routing tier, the container scheduling, and the log aggregation from Cloud Foundry brought into a kind of a single tenant standalone cluster scheduler that you could play with and or or build um, interesting thing with. 
So if you think about how Cloud Foundry works, it's got a bunch of things that are, I'll say, quote unquote, enterprisey, right? If you have a thousand developers, how are you going to manage their workflows? Like, what's their quotas? What's their rights to talk to these databases? A bunch of that stuff's built into Cloud Foundry. So you have this sophisticated model for role-based authentication and service brokers, and that's all handled for you. Where with Lattice, if someone has uh, credentials to to talk to the receptor, then they basically have cluster root for everything. So what might be appropriate uh, for it's it's the same scheduler that's the core of Cloud Foundry, but if you're if you're three guys in a dorm room in Palo Alto, you probably don't need role-based authentication for a hundred people or thousand people. Um, but if you're you know interested in containers and cluster schedulers and that kind of stuff, then last might be cool. I like that. Yeah, go ahead, Brent. No, it's you know it's it's um, it's certainly interesting technology. All your buzzwords. Um, I watched uh, you present at Cloud Foundry Summit 2014. I wasn't there, but I watched um, your. There's no talent shortage. I think. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Actually, you just pinned that recently too. Um, the um, one that's the one that's pinned isn't the Cloud Foundry one. It's oh, one. it's a different one. It's from Velocity. It's a similar talk. It's actually a little longer. Um, little, covered a little bit more stuff. But that was what I was. I was doing a bunch of reading on academic papers on organizational learning. Kind of inspired that talk um, when when. Uh, James convinced me to come help him. Yeah, you used the term in there, software is eating the world, and we're hearing that, I mean, every day now. Um, that's, so, old, that's old news. That's yes. old news. It's already eaten it. <laughs> so, software's fat. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's eating everything. So, All right, well, fair enough. Hey, then what, let's talk about something else that you discussed in that, in that um, talk track was, and this is about eating as well, but culture eats strategy and culture is strategy. So can you elaborate on that, on that comment? So if you go back and, and, I mean, there's nothing in that talk that isn't kind of inspired or derivative from a bunch of these people like Deming and Drucker and you know, all the kind of gold rat, whatever, uh, the people have referred to um, as luminaries and sort of the, I won't say cultural management, but just you know, like putting together systems, high-performing systems of human beings to accomplish work. And that's actually a Drucker quote, I believe, that, that uh, culture eats strategy. Um, but basically, and, and that, this is a theme that I try to develop in that talk, uh, I believe very strongly that if you can connect human beings to their intrinsic motivations, and that if you can unite a group of people to, to really serve uh, one purpose, then you kind of get this superpower, and you know, no one else in the world can stop you unless they're as focused and as unified as what you're doing, and and I think that that proves out across, you know, a bunch of different industries historically, where, you know, one one group is gonna is gonna put something together and it'll be special, and sometimes that doesn't always last forever, right? Like pour one out for Sun Microsystems, but uh, for moments in time, like you could do some really special things if you get everyone kind of focused on a goal and inspired to do something. Yeah, well, I think I think you um, you brought up Conway's law, which talks. I think talks about that, and I didn't know what the hell it was. I looked it up, and it was actually pretty cool. And, and it sounds to me um, like it was—is this the basis of you know kind of the DevOps fundamentals? I don't know if it's the basis, but it's definitely kind of one of the pillars in the sense that you have. So, so Conway's law for people who aren't familiar is a—it's a refrain from a computer scientist back in the '70s that said that you organizations will build systems that mirror. The communication patterns of the of the organization, 
So if you have, if you have, uh, and I, I think if you go look in some of the uh, original versions of that, is is he's talking about if you have a, if you have four different teams working on a compiler, you're going to end up with a four pass compiler, right? Like, uh, and and the way that it plays out in these distributed systems um, and these microservice architectures is if you have uh, problems with with kind of bugs or or inconsistencies in like a certain API communicating with another one, then that's often a reflection of the, the way that those human beings and those two groups communicate with each other. And you can often fix problems in your, in your system, in your architecture, uh, by, by facilitating that communication. Right? And this is and it, seems, it seems almost um, common sense, right? Communi- we, I mean, communication is key. We say it probably every day to each other, especially in, in business. But like it's somehow we've lost that ability within siloed organizations. Well, it's funny, and you go back in time, and this is why it's, it's both an uh, interesting opportunity for all of us and also somewhat depressing to see these cycles. So the, the stuff that I often quote from Deming, you know, that's 50 years old, 50, 60 years old. And he had phenomenal results uh, in the U.S. Uh, during the war, and then everyone came back and they're like, oh, that's some hippie nonsense. It might work for women in factories, but we're not going to do that. And then Deming had to go to Japan and like basically uh, convince the, the Japanese to do it, and it's the basis for the Toyota production system. And then it took us getting our, our you know, the U.S., that is, the, the, you know, the U.S. automotive stuff kind of getting thrashed by them before they even started looking at that stuff again. And so it's like kind of lost, and it seems like for whatever reason, we, we revert back to these sort of feudal management systems, right? They don't, don't take advantage of the the intrinsic motivation and the focus on quality and all this stuff that Drucker and Deming and these people, for whatever reason, and this this also relates to that talk about the um, the talent shortage. So the the research that I stumbled into and I got uh, really inspired by was all from the 90s, and and it's just sort of sitting there. And it was very interesting research to me, uh, and I still think that there's there's a goldmine of of kind of thought that went into some of that stuff, but. But we're we're still dealing with basically like these feudal kind of industrial age um, management systems in most of our companies. So, uh, and so speaking <clears throat> of companies, right? You work at one now, Pivotal, and you came there. Your uh, James Waters brought you there, and you probably had some expectations going in versus what they're doing and what they're. How do you, given what you feel about culture and teams and things like that, how do you feel they're doing it right, and maybe how do you feel like they're doing it wrong in certain cases? Well, I think Pivotal is an interesting experiment, and you guys, you know, you're at EMC right now, and you sort of, sort of know probably some of the history, but uh, for people who might not know this, Pivotal was created as a, a mix of assets coming out of VMware and EMC about three years ago. And, and I, didn't, I didn't go into Pivotal with uh, very much mystery, right? I, I had very candid conversations about what was going on and, and how, how I could help and what kind of James felt he needed uh, me to help him do. Um, but if you think about what it's like to work inside of EMC, what it's like to work inside of VMware for some length of time, and most of these were actually startups um, or you know businesses that existed before they were inside of EMC and VMware. So you took, depending on how you you cut and slice and dice and squint at it, you know between seven to ten different companies, each with their own history and and egos and politics, and kind of smashed them all together and said, hey, go figure out how to IPO. Right, and, and so that has been refactored over time 
to something that's, I believe, getting, you know, to be quite amazing. Uh, but there's definitely, you know, this, this process of, of figuring out what Pivotal is actually all about and becoming something um, that could and should be. And I'm, I'm really excited about what we're doing right now. And, and I know you guys know a little bit about Cloud Foundry and, and some of the platform stuff that we're doing. But uh, Pivotal basically has three, three businesses uh, that are a focus now. So you have the, the platform stuff that you guys sort of alluded to a little bit. Uh, you have uh, a big data business, some d- analytics um, things. There's this Green Plum database, uh, Gemfire, and and this uh, SQL and Hadoop thing called Hawk. Um, those are all interesting and exciting uh, technologies. And then there's the the Pivotal Labs, which kind of going back to this culture point is is a transformative way uh, to build software. And and they have uh, you know really going back to the heart of the agile. Uh, extreme programming methodology, you know, that, that software that we build at Pivotal is all pair programmed, all test driven, like all those things that people aspire to do. That's, that's what we do every day. We walk our talk and we build software, the, you know, kind of like the extreme programming straight, straight up, you know, Jedi in the swamp style, extreme programming. And I've noticed you guys as a whole, uh, maybe it's, Maybe it's coincidental. Uh, in other words, you know, correlation is not causation. But it seems like over the last mm, thirty days or so, you guys have gotten kind of maybe a, a little bit more amplified on social media, and you know, more things coming out. Is that is that a result of releasing hundred million dollar company type information, or is that simply you guys have really gotten to the point where you think this thing's really clicking? It's almost on all cylinders, and we're ready to go, and we're making a large push. Uh, I think it's a it's a little bit of both. Right, and and I think that there's a bunch of things that are kind of coming together in a very interesting way that I think makes Pivotal a special place. So you have, you know, the the new CEO, which is the you know Rob Me replaced Paul Moritz, and Rob Me is the founder of Pivotal Labs. Um, he sort of embodies this this Pivotal Lab spirit of you know sustainable pace and and focus on engineering quality. And there's a bunch of things that that. You know, labs already had as a tradition this kind of imprinted across all of Pivotal. But really, you know, going back to the story about how Pivotal was formed, it wasn't until kind of the last year that it, it was clear what Pivotal was going to be. It was kind of this portfolio monster, and there's all these puzzle pieces, and and you know, who is going to be the the thing that makes the or what what product is going to be the thing that that makes this company go? And it's pretty clearly Cloud Foundry. Uh, but it took a while to figure that out. And, and Cloud Foundry went from, the, from a business with basically zero dollars uh, when Pivotal was formed into the, the thing that is basically the kind of the focus for the company going forward. Yeah, I think that's, that's actually pretty cool. Um, you know, so obviously, Cloud Foundry open source project, Pivotal Cloud Foundry is, is the enterprise version, the supported version. Um, but you guys actually open sourced a whole bunch of other stuff too, right? Hawk. Uh, exactly. Gemfire, Greenplum, um, like you're, everyone's moving towards this either free and frictionless or open source. So how has how's how's the reception been from the community for things like Hot Greenplum, etc.? I think this is very. It's I mean my background working at Puppet, working at OpenStack, working on these other projects. I have uh, you know particular ideas about you know the philosophy of open source and and how to do that and how to interact with communities and, and there's you know a bunch of those things that I think if you look at the history of, of Pivotal, like it took 
a while to kind of get there. But I, I believe at a high level, uh, the executives in Pivotal really believe that the, the future of infrastructure is going to be open source centric. And so to bring consistency across the portfolio, uh, we made the decision a while ago, and, and you know it's still a train. Uh, not so the announcement was made to open source everything, and we've open sourced about uh, half of the data products now. Uh, another one's going to be open source really, really soon. But you have uh, Gemfire um, open sourcing it added to Apache, and that's that's really just going to be the to kind of bring the strategic consistency across the portfolio, we're going to open source um, every part of the of the pivotal portfolio. Okay, that's cool. I, and another follow up question to that: um, ODP, Open Data Platform. How's that going? Like we asked some other guests in the past, so I'm guess I'm curious how what your thoughts are on it and how and how we're doing out there. I think I mean for me personally, I don't have the most insight into that because I'm in a a little bit of a different orbit inside of, of Pivotal. So I talk to those guys, and I think that you know, looking at what we're doing um, in conjunction with that community and Hortonworks and some of those other people involved, that it's been uh, very well received across our our customers. Um, I know there's other people in the the Hadoop ecosystem or whatever that um, are kind of vocal about how unhappy they are, but in a sense, it's it's basically kind of polarized into into those two two camps. And I think that the the people that are you know ODP inclined like the fact that this group this consortium is, is working to to maintain uh, you know standards and compatibility across uh, their different product offerings, and that seems to be meaningfully um, you know impacting the business for all of them. And and I think it's uh, it's a win. Yeah, we're seeing more and more of just those um, collaborations, whether it's the open compute platform, the open container initiative, open data platform. Like, it's becoming a thing. Uh, I don't know if these are just like because people are all hopped up and excited, but I do, I do actually feel like we're getting more collaboration out there, cross industry, cross vertical, just different pools of talent. Peak, peak foundation is what I like to call it. Um, I think that there's. Uh, there's definitely collaboration, but there's also competition, right? Like, not not all of these um, are are 100 percent aligned with with you know each other's sort of business and go to market, but they're but they're aligned in the fact that they want to see these things be a standard. So that I mean, just just imagine what the internet would be like right now if you didn't have uh, these these network devices that could talk to each other, right? Or that <laughs> like you could you could kind of like count on making a a standard HTTP request, and it's going to touch a bunch of different gear across the internet and come back to you. Like, so that that's kind of what we're trying to get to as a place where you can compete, um, but at the same time, you need to have that that underlying sort of substrate of standards that allows you to to build meaningful things. And so I, I think all these different things are different layers of the stack, and they're all kind of in flux. But but it's an exciting time to be working on these kind of problems. Do you feel like um, having certain standards, is there is there any risk that trying to turn a lot of this de software development into something that looks like an RFC where a group of people sit around and they decide what can and can't be added and you start to get these fiefdom things that we're talking about again and people pushing people away. Um, is, there any, is there risk to that as that starts to happen more and more? Absolutely. I, I think there's always risk um, and you, there's always politics and there's always all these, you know, agendas and, and incentives, right? I, I think that, and I made this argument before that you can actually collapse the standards too early, 
right? Especially when, when people are pushing for, for cloud standards and, and you really haven't even explored what's possible in some of these things. So I think that there's, there's often a push to standardize, but that, that push should also be counterbalanced by uh, people who are willing to explore and take risk and, and do these sort of things. So I think there's a, there's a bit of tension there, but I think that that tension is, is also healthy. And to me, the biggest thing is not collapsing into standards. It's basically getting the, the highest utility, right? And so, like, let's build things that work. Let's build things that solve problems. And then as, as you solve problems, like, you prove your right to, to become a standard. So, Andrew, how... I mean, we're talking about a lot of stuff, right? Um, the industry is evolving. It's changing. Uh, we all know that. How do you personally, uh, you know, educate yourself? How do you co- continuously learn the the latest, the greatest, uh, adapt, you know, and hone your skills? I think there's a there's a fine line between uh, doing research and like being totally distracted on the internet, uh, and you know, I've like we mentioned earlier, you know, I'm little idea on Twitter, and I follow certain types of people, and I kind of cultivate information. Like I used to read RSS, but it's basically been replaced by this stream of of content that I know if I see, you know, certain types of links from certain types of people that are going to represent these things. Uh, and you know, I follow developers and I follow uh, operators, and and I know when someone posts a certain type of link, then it's probably worth worth reading. And, and so I consume. Uh, a fair amount of information, just because that's sort of my my nature. There's a there's a thing I made everyone on my team take. It's called the the Colby Index, Colby Index A, and it basically measures like how people naturally um, approach problem solving. And I I feel like if I would have known this about myself and about other people I worked with before, then um, it, it would have given us a kind of stronger synergies, like understanding each other's approaches to problem solving. But kind of my natural inclination for for my personality and how I'm wired is uh, what she calls a fact finder. So like my nature is just to find details and like dissect it and kind of take it apart and put it back together. So but, it's kind of uh, like the Myers-Briggs type of thing, right? So if you yeah, it's out- similar where you take a battery of, of kind of multiple choice questions and then, and then like she gives you a profile based on your, um, you know, propensity to do certain things. So is the Colby index a, um, can you, can you do that online for free? Uh, no, it's cost fifty dollars. Fifty bucks. Okay. Hey, Van. Hey, Brent. I think we're gonna do that this weekend, and uh, I'll pop the hundred bucks, and that way we can get along better. Because <laughs> you're, I mean, you're definitely the fact. Clearly, finder. something's not working. Yeah, here. you're. You're definitely the fact finder. So, uh, dude, uh, the Colby Index is really awesome. I'm uh, like, I'm intrigued now. I want to stop talking to you and just go look it up. Um, but we're we're gonna continue to talk about stuff and. One of the other things is we keep talking about this, you know, game-changing stuff, uh, organizations changing things. Uh, you made a comment. You had a really strong, you had a really strong opinion. Uh, there, you're either building a software business, or you'll be losing to someone who is. So, you know, how how strong? I mean, obviously, you feel pretty strongly about that. So, tell us more. In in, in a sense, that's just rephrasing the software's eating the world. It's it's really you know just the same idea, kind of re reworded. But looking across, I think that it's fairly safe to say computers aren't going away and that everything that can be disrupted or impacted by connecting uh, people to information, uh, to experiences through this high-speed network connected to the sum total of all human knowledge 
everything that can be disrupted will be right like that's happening we're watching that happen pretty much every day in our work lives and and so i i just feel like that's the general trend and i'm not alone in saying that you know software in the world uh, is a quote from mark andreessen and that's just that's just me framing it a different way like if you want to compete i think you know and this is really part of the pivotal story right pivotal's high level mission right now is transforming the way the world builds software and we feel like software capabilities all the traditional enterprise companies that never viewed themselves as tech companies never viewed themselves as software companies they're all building software teams right like software is is changing the dynamic of, of human performance is changing the dynamic of human experience and if you can't provide that in conjunction with whatever else you do then then someone else will and you're probably going to be vulnerable to them and you can see that so I was reading, I don't know, this is actually a little dated now. It's, I read this about, uh, I think, nine months ago, that there was a 60% reduction in the taxi fares in San Francisco in one year from Uber. Like, if that's not disruption, then I don't know what disruption is, right? And and that's, a, you know, it's, it's fun, right? Because, like, I actually, we've learned a lot about the software stuff from the Pivotal guys being part of the Federation. Uh, frankly, you know, uh, what I knew last year or two years ago versus what I know now because of what you guys are driving uh, has made me smarter in that world. And I, I go to meet a customer and this customer sells a service essentially, right? Like, and they, they come to us and they say, we say, what's your business about? And they were like, we are a software company that happens to sell this service. And the service is something as simple as something that runs in your house. And so the idea that they look at themselves like that, I was like, man, it's, uh, I'm, I'm waiting, I'm ready to talk to you. And I took like two pages of notes on a, an hour long meeting because I was so excited about all the things they were doing. One of the things they were messing with, which you're very keenly aware of is, is DevOps. They said the word and my understanding is you're pretty much, uh, you're the guy who invented the word or at least given the credit for it. Uh, so in the, the first recorded use of this word, and it's sort of a portmanteau or whatever of, of developer and operations, is I tweeted watching a Velocity talk of uh, my friends Paul Hammond and, and uh, John Allspaugh talking about developers and operators uh, collaborating at Flickr and how they did 10 deployments per day. So this is kind of a proto-continuous delivery talk at Velocity in 2009. And then in conversation, I, I'd met uh, Patrick Dubois at, at the Agile conference in 2008 in Toronto, and we'd been having discussions about he wanted to do this. He, he'd actually written an interesting paper that's still out there about uh, using Agile methods to do system administration. And, and he and I were having this conversation, and, and he decided he wanted to organize a conference, and I'd just been organizing conferences. I organized a conference called Agile Roots, um, and I'd organized a conference um, like the first puppet camp, basically. And so, like, I, I, not that I knew what I was doing, but I just decided to do that. Um, and so I, I fed him a bunch of um, ideas about how, how he could pull it off. And then uh, DevOps Days was born um, from Patrick Dubois' work in, in Belgium. And I was, I, I had every intent to go, but he happened to schedule it uh, on uh, Halloween. And it's, it's pretty hard for a, uh, a father of two young boys at the time to to get on the plane and go to Europe uh, during Halloween. So I sent ta I sent Tail from uh, Puppet Labs to go to the first one. Um, but then the, the format for DevOps days was uh, kind of this half sort of uh, presentations, half open space, which was uh, the first time that I know of anyone using that format. And there, there might be other people, but 
I, I definitely kind of constructed it um, deliberately was at the first puppet camp. And so that's sort of been the format for DevOps days ever since. Cool. That's very cool. That's really cool. And uh, I feel your pain on, on Halloween. Not only would I not miss it, but it's, it's my favorite holiday. And I have like probably like 20, 20 gallon tubs in the uh, garage full of Halloween stuff. I have a calendar reminder. I'm so I'm like excited about Halloween that says decorate the house. Like it pops up every year. <laughs> so, <laughs> so do you, are you okay? So you're a creator. Uh, are you the guy who the, the three boys, right? Do they get to go to spirit Halloween store and buy the $30, you know, Sith mask, or do you have to sit down three months in advance, uh, create a pro, you know, project, go 3d print a bunch of stuff and get them like custom costumes. So we kind of gone a little bit of both routes before. Uh, I, I think, you know, and I, I said this a little bit before we started, the schedule that I have and my wife has probably take a little bit away from uh, the more creative projects. But we, we definitely did some, uh, we did some creative uh, minion costumes and we did some creative Minecraft costumes before. And then, uh, you know, so it's a mix of that kind of stuff. And then sometimes it's like, oh, I want to be a ninja. So we just like, we get the little the little plastic sword and the and the you know the black scarf and go with it. But. Yeah, my yeah, my favorite thing though is like the kids seem to these days. My kids like to do mashups, so they want to be Darth Vader princess, or my son wants to be like Freddy Krueger mad scientist. So he wants to like be the mad scientist who burned himself and turned into Freddy Krueger. And I'm sitting here going, how am I going to create this? And he's like, dad, the mad scientist juice is just Gatorade or some of that stuff that is in the tube and you just break it open and it glows and pour it into a beaker. And I'm like, Oh, I love you so much. That's, you know, I'm glad you're my son because you've got that, that, that Halloween flair to you. So there you go. I love (laughs) Halloween. I'm excited about it. And I have, I clearly don't make as much as you do. So I have a lot of free time for Halloween costumes. Well, it's not even, I mean, the, (laughs) my wife's, um, commitment and her schedule is the thing that kills us over here but I, I would love to do more projects and and th- that relates to everything i'd love to have more projects for everything but there's only so many hours in the day true so i guess now that we're out of the weeds let's let's stay out of the weeds for just a little bit um talked about stuff other than work so little idea that's your handle on twitter what uh what's it all about uh it's actually it goes back to uh a martial art i used to do called Wing Chun and it's uh oh, yeah. it's basically like the the first form of Wing Chun is the Suam Tao which means the the way of the little idea um and that's like it's sort of like an alphabet that everything else hangs off of and I don't know I just I just picked it early when I was getting on Twitter as a as a handle and then I use it on you know GitHub and the rest of the social media mm-hmm yeah. Uh, Wing Chun, I think, uh, so I was in the Army for a while down at Fort Bragg, which is the home of special operations, but I know a lot of the uh, Green Berets practice Wing Chun. I went to uh, airborne school at Fort Benning. In the, no uh, shit. Back in the day, yeah. Why and, is this, why is this not? potty mouth, just as soon as he heard somebody was in the military, look at that. He just go right back into it. <laughs> no kidding. So did, did you, actually, you actually serve active duty, or you just went for... Um, like uh, OCS or something like that. Uh, I'll tell you that story on another podcast. <laughs> All right, or, or, or over uh, over dinner. Yeah, I yeah. like that idea. We oh, do uh, awesome. sushi for secrets, right? That's uh, something that that uh, we developed early on. But yeah, we'll definitely do that. So here, here's right. here's a little thing I want to teach everyone because I've been go I go to a lot of sushi. Like I I need to do a how to eat sushi lesson for people. Are you a traditionalist uh, here? Is that what we're I'm coming? A finger into? guy. 
Well, I do eat a lot of sushi with my fingers. Mm-hmm. But that's like, I mean, that's the Japanese. Um, yeah. Okay? But I think that, and, you know, just don't put the rice in the soy sauce. That's all I'm asking people. Yes. Oh. Just dip it upside down, huh? It's fish like, only. Yeah, learn, learn, learn the, and you just, it's about respect. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the other thing too is uh, ask for wasabi and they'll put it on there prior to serving it, right? In, in a traditional Japanese kind of preparation, you, you probably shouldn't make a big soup full of wasabi and soy sauce. <laughs> but let's, let's also admit that that is, that is a, a great American invention. And, and it's not that they don't have wasabi. It's just uh, like you can't actually understand or, or taste what the, the preparation is trying to express if you just drown it with the horseradish. Yeah, the, I think we're what we're doing. It's kind of the training wheels of how you get people who don't normally eat a lot of raw fish into the raw fish world. Is they just put some awesome flavors on there. There's like I've seen a lot of these places where they make the rolls, and who knows what's inside of it? it doesn't matter because it's got 14 sauces on top of it. So yeah. all you can taste is the sriracha slash wasabi slash eel sauce that's on top of it. <laughs> Whatever. It literally could just be a roll of rice, and nobody would know. I mean, oh, that, yeah. my, my other pet peeve is a lot of deep fried rolls, but. Uh-huh. We can talk about something else. Yeah. <laughs> we okay, are, yeah well, you're not, you're not breaking anything. We love to give everybody a, a, a deep insight into how their world can be better, whether yeah. it be uh, pod rate, you know, like quad racing, whether it be uh, becoming a professional DJ and trying to take down Afrojack um, or, you know, paddle boarding uh, to, to stop thinking about venture capital. We like to talk about these things. So I can see that you're a bit of a sushi purist. So you've, you've done good travels. Have you gotten to go to Japan and, and do it the right way? Uh, I've only had sushi in Tokyo once, but I mean, I, I had sushi more than once, but with my colleagues. Have uh, you seen the documentary, uh, Hero Dream, Dreams of Sushi? Oh, I have seen that, of course. Yes. Yeah. That's it, a, that's a great one. I think I've watched it multiple times. So I love there. I love the, the part in there. He's like, dude, I don't care about fresh fish. You're wasting money. He goes, I take it all and I freeze it in a medical grade freezer. And then I pull it out like, I don't know, a week later or whatever. And like, he goes, that's the best stuff. This is what I, this is what I served. Uh, all, all the sushi that is served, you know, in kind of the top restaurants is basically flash frozen, um, flown through Japan and then back to wherever. Yeah. And I've also heard that Mitsubishi owns like three quarters of the world's tuna stock in their freezers that like, they, they're like, in, they're literally like uh, investing in, in tuna. Hoping that we all, yeah, basically cornering the market and they've got tunas frozen everywhere, hidden in freezers. And they're just waiting for us to kill them all, and then they're going to bring it out for like a billion dollars a pound. But one of the things I really appreciate is this this um, kind of Japanese evolutional, like cultural attention to detail, right? The the, the sushi is very ceremonial, and the the tea ceremony, and like some of these other things that kind of permeate classical Japanese culture. That I, I don't know, I just have an appreciation for it. The the last time I was in Japan, uh, not Japan. The last time I was in LA, I. Uh, I, I speak like the world's smallest amount of Japanese because I took it in college because it was better than taking Spanish in Texas. Um, and so I was talking to somebody and I just said, thank you in Japanese. And, uh, you know, he was like, got really excited because I spoke it and I was like, I'm horrible. And then he proceeded to tell me a story about how they kind of work their way up through the world. And if you remember Hero Dreams of Sushi, like the younger brother is in the hallway toasting Nori, like, you know, as, that, as part of the flavor profile which is super cool. But basically as an intern, you don't even get to touch rice. They're like, yeah. we just need you to clean tables for like five years. Uh, and then you're going to do, you're going to make rice 
for like three years. And then, and then when you're finally good at rice, we might let you cut fish. And I, that's no, no, the, <laughs> you got to make the tamago. Right? Yeah. From, you got to make the egg, the egg yeah. thing. Yeah, you throw egg. It, and you can't even serve it. It's not good enough to be served. You got to make it like a few hundred times. Yeah, you make it, and, and they're like, "Yeah, that's horrible. We wouldn't feed it to the dog." And there, there's all these processes. And then one day, after you've been working in that restaurant for 20 years, all of a sudden, you're the well-respected sushi chef, uh, and then you get to do that for the rest of your life. And it's it, that kind. Of, I, I agree with you. That kind of attention to detail is awesome, uh, and the apprenticeships and the and the the care for their hard work is pretty awesome too. I think, I mean, this kind of goes back to this notion of culture. It's like every culture has expressions that are uh, powerfully, powerfully enabling. And then the flip side of the same thing is, is also somewhat pathological, right? And so, like, I think inside of all of our organizations is trying to find the balance of the, the people with their culture. And, you know, some of that is superimposed by who they are and how they grew up and like their notions of identity. And then some of it is just like connecting to the vision of, of what is greater than ourselves to do something uh, meaningful. And do you have an opinion on, I mean, a lot of cultures, obviously I look outside and I see a lot of other cultures and I, I kind of fall in love with the, the nuances of those cultures. What would you say is the American version of that in your opinion? Uh, I mean, so I've been, I've been blessed to go around uh, the world and, see a lot of cultures and I think that one of the things that, that Americans have advantage and this is all you know like I said it's both an advantage and also potentially pathological is that in in our culture uh, we probably have the ability to be more bold like we're more uh, willing to take risks uh, than, than some of these other uh, cultures it's kind of ingrained in our in our head is this notion of you know the wild west and and um, taking risks, and I think that you see that manifest in a in several different things. I um, mean, then the flip side of that is we can be super obnoxious and, and kind of abusive, but <laughs> uh, that that kind of exists everywhere. So Brent, uh, we're gonna you, this whole taking risks and stuff like that. I don't know if you consider it taking a risk, but Brent found that you were one of the co-founders of Puppet. Uh, and we've seen through some of your presentations, sometimes you'll be talking about it and you'll be like, eh, maybe I won't talk about that. And, you know, you could skip over whatever you don't want. But where what did that start from? You know, what was that like? I mean, was it you and somebody in a garage? And, you know, what were your goals when you started it? And, you know, what was that all about for you? So so then um, my roommate at, at Reed College uh, back in the day is uh, is Luke Kinese, who's the he's the, the CEO of Puppet Labs. And and we stayed um, friends, and he was he was working as a sysadmin, and he'd been a big part of a of a project in a community called CF Engine, going back, and and so he had um, and he did some other stuff with ISConf or whatever, but he was like enamored with this idea that you could automate uh, machines, and he was inspired by the work he'd done on CF Engine. He was both uh, inspired and frustrated with CF Engine, uh, and so he had this idea, and he wanted to. Do it, and I'd been working as a developer, and so he kept trying to coax me to kind of come try to work on this project with him. And in the meantime, you know, my wife's starting uh, medical school, and I'm having uh, my first child, and so it's kind of a hard sell to say, like, "Hey, um, I know you're going to go to medical school, and and like I should probably feed my kids, but I'm going to run off with my roommate from college, and we're going to write software and give it away for free." Um, so, so like a lot of my, I'm sure that went over real well. Yeah, it went over really well. A lot of my early conversations were just like kind of talking through, like convincing uh, Luke to become more and more of a software developer, and he's very capable 
um, of that at this point. And then he's, now he's a very capable CEO as well. And, and so then as the – so my first commits in Puppet Code go back to like 2004. Um, and then you know, Puppet gets released and it's starting to build a community. And I was working at all these other venture-funded startups – and it became pretty clear that there's, you know, a bit of a community and, and some people adopting Puppet. And I've been working for venture-funded startups and, you know, watching people make bad decisions with tens of millions of dollars. And I thought that I could, uh, I could make bad decisions as well as anyone. So maybe I should, I should try to figure out how to kind of connect the dots and, and do some venture-funded thing. And it seemed like my friend's uh, project was a, was a great opportunity to do that. And so then we kind of like, talked about how we could work together and, and put together some stuff to try to uh, change the, or not necessarily change it, but just like make a bit more of a business around the community that was forming using Puppet. And so then uh, that's what I did kind of full time for a couple of years until basically the end of 2009. So at some point you kind of, uh, you kind of realize that your uh, roommate from college and your friend uh, don't have the same vision for how you should maybe build the company and it's probably easier to be friends than business partners and then you just uh, get opportunities to, to work on other stuff and wish them the best. And had um, had Puppet and whatever the chef movement and had that split already occurred by the time you'd left or? Yes. Okay. And so how do you feel? How do you feel? I, I mean, we talked, Randy talked about it a little bit, but uh, it seems like now they've almost kind of merged back to the same point again. Where they're kind of I, caught up to each other a bit. Um, I wouldn't say they merged so much as like there's there's only like so many things you can do with computer and like that paradigm, and so like they both chose different philosophical or philosophical approaches at, at some point. But then like you like that exposes gaps, and so they're yeah like I'd say I wouldn't say they converge so much as there's a very similar paradigm. Like the way that Puppet views the world. And the way Chef views the views the world is very similar, and so that that convergence. So I don't I don't know. Like from ten thousand feet, Puppet and Chef always really look the same. Like the the only thing that really came out, and this is uh, the split is basically that Adam thought that Puppet should do certain things, um, kind of more uh, what he thought was non deterministic behavior. He wanted it to be linear, where where Luke argued that that's a bug that you have an unspecified dependency because the way Puppet models everything is a graph. And if you do a topological sort on a graph, then it's not unique. So you could get different orders. Uh, but then I think that the, I mean, I can see both sides of this. Like I have a very measured, um, and I'm, I'm, I have a lot of respect and I'm friends with Adam as well to like see kind of like why he thought these things a certain way. And I think that the, and I wrote this up in, in Quora and like some other places before, but basically you have to look at the the way those projects evolved. Where Puppet was coming from, you know, Luke's perspective, managing Solaris, kind of like, uh, uh, you know, like this financial application where you're inheriting a bunch of legacy infrastructure and you're trying to bring the the infrastructure into compliance with a policy in this enterprise environment. Where Adam was mostly focused, and you know, he did he did tons of Puppet work. Um, managing these deployments for startups and and for him he wasn't trying to bring things into compliance with the policy so much as have a predictable uh deployment on a greenfield application so the the managing of dependencies and like this strong model was and i think that this kind of plays out in the in the adoption 
as well because like the mindset that Luke had it was much more sort of enterprise focused where uh, I think Adam had a bit more of a sort of a cloud startup focus in perspective and so that that was reflected in the in the kind of the bifurcation but then you know chef wants to do business with the enterprise that's where there's money and then puppet definitely wants to be more cloudy right and so like as, as you evolve like you just you get those capabilities because it's a necessity yeah i've seen you know i've got customers uh here in phoenix across the valley puppet customers uh, chef ansible and uh you know i saw you present on puppet um internally for our cloud devops group which and i was like oh this is this is really cool but uh i guess my point is who if anyone is winning the race I don't know if that will ever consolidate. You know, at this point, you have uh, Puppet and Chef are kind of the um, incumbents. I, I see a lot more Puppet in the enterprise, um, and you know pro- that might be a sampling bias. And then I see, you know, a bit more Chef and kind of the startupy side of stuff, and that's probably reflected in what I just said with the kind of the underpinnings, like the philosophical motivations of their of their founders. And then you know, Ansible is growing um, really fast. And then, and then salt also has a bit of a of a thing, and then there's you know kind of a long tail of other things. But I don't really see anyone quote unquote winning. I don't see that consolidating. Um, and then there are also other things evolving, right? Like you can't really talk about managing systems without also trying to like if you're if you're in 2015 with your eyes open, like there's Docker, right? And there's there's um, if you're trying to deploy applications, then the the tools that were designed to manage servers are not always necessarily uh, particularly suited to manage applications, and that's where you see sort of these purpose-built platforms uh, that have, from the beginning, a, an app-centric or service-centric focus instead of a server-centric focus. Where you know, compared to what you're trying to do with uh, Cloud Foundry to do a deployment. Going back and 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 kind of filling in all the gaps with glue code to do orchestration of puppet recipes just doesn't seem like a great way to deploy software to me in 2015. Hmm. It's a great it's a great way to deploy uh, really infrastructure centric stuff. Um, puppet has great integrations to storage and networking resources that you're not going to get from something like Cloud Foundry, but from an application lifecycle kind of continuous deployment perspective. Uh, I, I think you're going to be hard pressed to find better solution than Cloud Foundry right now. Okay. So Cloud Foundry, we know it as platform as a service. Um, I've I've seen or heard the argument: stop calling it a PaaS, just call it a platform. Um, what is I it just, to you? So I don't like the word uh, PaaS because I think it's ambiguous and it, it kind of got overloaded. And it was created in the first place to fill this you know imaginary taxonomy that. You know, whatever infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, software as a service, and infrastructure as a service was more or less well defined, and uh, SaaS was was a broad category but somewhat well defined, and then PaaS is like this thing in the middle, and like no one really knew what it what it meant. But if if there is a definition of a of a PaaS, then I think the acceptable definition for me personally is this sort of API driven way to do. Uh, the the lifecycle management of an application, right, from deployment to scaling up and down, and and the rest of that stuff, and and that I think that definition works pretty well when you look at things like the App Engine and Heroku and the rest of that. But then the the key thing here, and and why I don't like that word when you look at Cloud Foundry, 
is the as a service. So if you think about what it takes for Heroku, who will 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 say fits this definition of a PaaS that I just gave you, how does Heroku deploy Heroku? What what are the capabilities that you need to deploy Heroku? Because that platform, quote unquote, as a service, is an application, has its own life cycle, has all these other things that have to be done to operate it. And so what do you have to do to do that? And if you look at what Cloud Foundry is providing, then you have that full lifecycle management of the platform as a service. And so that's the capability that I want people to understand. And that's really what we aspire to do with Cloud Foundry is give you the ability to run everything as a service, right? You, all your databases, all your applications, this, this continuous delivery pipeline, which is itself an application, managed with the full lifecycle health checks, monitoring, whatever, as a service. And so that's why I, I prefer kind of this, this broader understanding because I think PaaS, and the thing this is supported with, with data, if you do a little bit of research, has a little bit of baggage. And, and I think that if you have this larger conversation about capabilities, then you can have a much more meaningful um, and rich understanding of, of what people are trying to do. Where if you just say PaaS, uh, one, it has baggage, and two, it's ambiguous. So you have to kind of define things and what that person means before you could keep keep talking. So I like in thinking in the large about capabilities and and having that conversation. Um, obviously, in reference to Cloud Foundry, but but you know, really about all these things, right? Like going back a minute to the to the puppet question. Pretty much every puppet chef, and I I did tons of chef deployments as well. Like all those projects basically aspired to build something that looks like a deployment platform. That looks like uh, you know the things that you do. In Cloud Foundry, so you're going to do orchestration to do canary deployments. I built systems to do that with with all these other tools. Uh, you're going to how are you going to manage role-based access to resources? You know, we built that kind of stuff. You you know, you you cobble some st stuff together with LDAP and whatever, and like you make it work. But I think there's a really thoughtful solution to a bunch of those problems in an integrated top to bottom solution in the Cloud Foundry ecosystem right now. And so there's there, uh, there's something you mentioned recently about the difference between a structured and an unstructured platform. Uh, and so with everything that you've given us just now, is there is is one better than the other? Or is it based on the needs of the customer? Is it based on the needs of the application? Or so I think I made a more um, inflammatory and opinionated comment, uh, which is that there's no such thing as an unstructured platform, uh, and and that what you have is an unfinished platform. Right, so so you have either a platform that has X, Y, and Z capabilities, or you don't. And if you need those capabilities, then you have to add them, right? And so you look at some of the other stuff out there. It's like there's a lot of stuff people are calling unopinionated platforms that are really just the engines of the car. And so if you want to drive, like you're probably going to need wheels. You're probably going to need brakes. You might want to have a windshield. You might want to have windshield wiper, like all these other things you got to add, and then you could drive home. Or you could just put an engine, you know, on the on the buggy, whatever the the roll bars, and go. Like maybe that's what you want. And so, for, I'm glad those are out there, but I, I don't. I think that's a very different thing than than like what I would consider a platform. Okay. So you brought up uh, in this discussion, you know, containerization. Uh, I don't want to dig too much into it because I'm sure it'll be a, a, a long diatribe, but uh, you said containers are over. So, um, you know, for me with my, my kind of general understanding of, of, you know, Pivotal Cloud Foundry, 
hearing things like Warden, Garden, Droplets, Diego, and then you know we've got uh, Rocket and Docker. Like, why why were things like Docker? Um, why did they come about when you know a platform has the similar functionality that's already inherently built in with you know Droplets? For- so I mean, it's an interesting kind of circular orbit that all these projects have gone right so the the work that inspired docker was actually attempting to build a platform as a service right docker was work that it it wasn't docker internally but it was inspired by the work that they did there at doc cloud right so if you know solomon and you know that story that was that was a hundred percent focused on trying to build a you know paths if you will okay and and the other thing to, to keep in mind here is that these things are not – I think people are kind of getting spun up and excited and exuberant about something that's not actually a technology in a sense, that the, the, the container capabilities are features of the Linux kernel that people have been running already and that they already have those capabilities in those kernels. It was just a, a usability bug that, that Docker – kind of exposed that made those capabilities accessible to uh, the more um, or maybe the less system savvy developers, right? So I, I've seen container-based deployment platforms built using Puppet going back to like 2007, 2008, right? Like those, those things were there. And, and even before the, so the C groups and namespace stuff that's in the kernel, uh, the people used to run the OpenVZ, which is like a, a containerization uh, technology to patch the kernel to make to make some of this stuff work right and so these are ideas and, and if you ever got into like the hosting and the you know the VPS stuff like people were running containers to to manage all the websites back even be, you know before any of the C group stuff got into the kernel from from Google so then when you look at what's actually happening at the level of the kernel all a container is when people say container it's really just a process like you'd start any other process. Just the, the, the kernel has features that limit the visibility of those processes so they can't see each other. And that's, that's, honestly, that's all containers really are. It's a process that can't see all the rest of the processes, and then you start them on their own file system. So you, you chirrut the, the process and start it on another file system so that it runs and, and makes believe that it's all by itself, a machine running in isolation, when in reality it's sharing a kernel with, you know, N number of other processes. And so people, going back to 2011, the, the Cloud Foundry project has been a container scheduler since 2011. And so you don't see Docker till 2013. And that's, that's cool. And I mean, they were using containers. Heroku's using containers. All these people are using containers. But Docker was able to capture people's imagination with this usability and then give them access to that. And then finally, the, the one last thing is... I think that Cloud Foundry has done a poor job of, of making its actual kind of components. It's, does a, it's done a great job of like solving this problem in an integrated way, but it's kind of a big pill to swallow. And, so it, and it doesn't always do a great job, and that's where you know, some of the stuff like Lattice is meaningful. It doesn't always do a great job of exposing what each of these components is actually doing. Right? Like the, the application just got deployed, but it's sort of magic 
uh, for most people that's hidden. So the, the container scheduler was there since 2011, but it wasn't really accessible. And, and you know, probably the worst part of that is it didn't really educate people uh, that that's what it was doing. And, and so that's, I mean, dude, we, you just blew the minds of, of us and the listeners. And um, by the way, that just means that's why I understand why containers are over now. Um, <laughs> a lot of, you know, I, I don't actually think containers are over. <laughs> um, I actually think in the future of containers is virtual machines, but that's probably a different show. Nice. <laughs> um, and so one of the things that you also said, we're going to go back to that list of things you said are kind of hot buttons for you. Um, I've used 12, 12 factor applications as a way of ex- describing to people something or a concept of how all of this is headed. Um, the, the kind of things that make up what needs to be done in order to start moving things to cloud native or platform or whatever it may be called. So is, is 12 factor applications a positive thing for you or you think it's kind of the wrong way of looking at it? I think it's a great thing and I think it's uh, very, very useful uh, to frame a lot of conversations I definitely use it in, in conversations I have with people. I also think that it's limiting as a religion. And I, I encourage people to understand uh, the costs and the benefits. And there's some work that I'm um, working on some people at Pivotal and, and some people outside of Pivotal to maybe do like a beyond 12-factor. Because the 12-factor the site has a, a pretty good description of what each of the 12 factors are. But it doesn't actually do a great job of explaining why. Like what is the benefit of moving things to like a stateless process? What is the benefit of, you know, having everything one from one repo? Like you could go through each of these factors and, and break down like what is it that you gain from this choice? And, and then, you know, maybe more interesting in some sense, what do you, what do you uh, lose, right? And so finding ways to, to have those discussions in a meaningful way, what, the way I've been framing it, and I did, did this at VMworld, is in terms of, of a contract and the promises that, that a platform can keep. So if you look at the 12-factor application, one of those things is that it assumes that it's going to write data to a backing service. Well, that means that that backing service better exist, right? So if you're not going to be responsible for that backing service, who is? What is the, what is the other side of that contract? And so there's a couple things I'm, I'm working on to like frame uh, maybe factors beyond 12 factors, um, and then also, how could these 12 factors, like what's the trade-off? How could these 12 factors be evolved? Sort of like a framework of factors. And then and really look at it in terms of the contracts that they make and then the promises that you can keep with the, with the contract. So uh, in, the, in the discussion I did at VMworld, I talked about 12-factor ops, right? So if you're going to have a 12-factor app that's going to f- have that as a contract, there better be this 12-factor ops and this 12-factor platform on the other side of it, this can provide the rest of that stuff like that backing service. Um, you know, if you're going to inject um, environment variables, something better do that. Something better keep track of that, right? So, like, there's all these other capabilities that kind of came from that other side. And if you look at, you know, 12-factor is a nice way to frame how uh, these things are built and why these things are built. Um, but it's really, in some sense, just a marketing manifesto from Heroku, Right. And it's, and it's expanded to be greater than that, and that kind of goes back to the to the PaaS discussion. But I think that there's evolving, um, and especially you know some of the interesting conversations I've had lately with uh, my colleague Josh McKenty, who some people might know from OpenStack, about adding more factors. Right, like there's there's no discussion about uh, security in 12 factor, right? Like 
so, so like he has this idea of adding other factors like being able to audit events and be able to do a bunch of things. So I think that there's some interesting conversations to have there. And for me, 12 factor was this nice evolutionary way to frame these sort of cloud native application architectures. But I don't think it's the only possible contract. And I think that you can build platforms that could, could keep other contracts and other promises. And I think that you know, that's something that we're working on uh, doing. And, and I really, really like kind of coming up with this evolution of the 12-factor beyond 12-factor as a, as a way to frame that evolution. I'm excited. I, I I can't wait to read that. So I, how soon are we going to get that? Are you promising that this weekend? or? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm actually about to fly to London to talk about um, operability at Operability.io. So it's a little bit... Um, I'm a little bit behind the curve to get that out there, but I have colleagues that are also interested in, in seeing that happen. So I think, I mean, if you, if you start to think about the world where you can do like, I don't know, volumes mounted from containers or uh, policy-based networking, container-to-container -container networking, like what does that world look like? Because it's not, it's not a 12-factor world anymore, but you definitely want to have this framing about the, the promises that you can keep. And I want I want to keep different promises about a stateless uh, service or stateless process than I do about someone's data for obvious reasons, right? And so I think it's, 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 um, it's a nice framing to have a thoughtful conversation about how that's evolving. So I'm going to totally cut you off, both of you guys. We're, I think, like over our time. We're doing Unfortunately, awesome. Unfortunately, I mean, we've got like, dude, we could probably stretch us out to two, probably three hours if we really dug into the content. Yeah, our guest but, next uh, week is Andrew yeah. Clay Schaefer. Yeah, we'll just break this episode up into three. Um, I'm happy Andrew, to come back. Maybe not next week. Yeah. Um, I'll be in London this time next week, but uh, I don't know. I, this is what I do. This is what we like to, to build and play with over at Pivotal, and, and I just like people having uh, cool stuff to play with and, and building the future, right? Like the, yeah. if, you're, if you're in this game and you understand software in the world, uh, you might as well play to win. Pow. Very good. <laughs> but please don't drop the mic. We still have questions to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, so, Andrew, uh, again, thank you. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, I think we heard it out there at Little Idea on Twitter, Little Idea on GitHub. Um, I, I did see a blog of yours, but it's like, I don't know, two years old or something like that. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been blogging on my own. I used, I used to do stochastic resonance back when I was all math-minded on, on WordPress, but it's a little bit neglected. And yeah. actually, my, my public GitHub's a kind of sparse lately too. But <laughs> And then uh, uh, you're on YouTube, man, so you've got your own channel, Andrew oh, yeah, Clay that's, Schaefer. That's a fun thing we do. I, I've mostly been doing YouTube through um, the Cloud Foundry stuff. So we do like Cloud Foundry After Dark, and we do uh, – yeah. Like there's some interviews out there, but yeah, we have uh, we have some content conversations about all this uh, all this stuff we're working on, and you know our customers. I mean, that's the thing I like about Pivotal right now is, and and this is also true about work I did at, at, at Puppet as well. Is like when someone uses your tool and they're like, "This is better," you know, my life is better because of of what you're building. That's a good feeling. Well, hopefully we didn't trigger you too much today. Uh, you were nice enough to to let us uh, use your trigger words and, and not. I, I, I'm, I'm mostly joking, right? When I say I know, yeah, <laughs> triggering. Well, I can see your triggering intensify, so move on. <laughs> but uh, so, so if I can get a quick, you know, let's call it thirty seconds. Uh, how's OpenStack doing? Oh man, that's a trigger. That's for sure. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, so I, I've been very public about my opinions about OpenStack in the past, and I think that there's, you know, we we have customers that are running Cloud Foundry on top of OpenStack. And, and OpenStack can definitely be made to work, and I've made it work before. 
I think the the thing about OpenStack is it just it didn't really get a, a critical mass of, of engineering focus before it got turned over to kind of marketing and politics, and so it, as a consequence, it is like always suffered because of that, and and that means that you can make it work, but the the happy path is is kind of narrow, and I think that where people went um, really off is is that there's you know a bunch of enterprises who who got enamored with the idea of cloud and they saw some of that marketing and they kind of had expectations that this was a, a finished project or a finished product. And so there's, and this is you know, already, already public on my, on my blog post from, from a few years ago now. Like I've literally had a front seat to watch massive companies burn hundreds of millions of dollars, um, you know, basically uh, hurting themselves trying to run uh, OpenStack clouds. And we're gonna have this conversation. I, I think this 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 is definitely this is, could be a podcast in and of itself. Um, I don't I don't want to sit and just talk bad about OpenStack, but like if you go into <laughs> OpenStack and you don't have a, a web ops understanding, you don't have like that DevOps mindset, then OpenStack is not gonna be fun for you. Mm. All right, man. Cool. Well, thank you for that uh, that that brief overview of, of of your thoughts on OpenStack. So. Um, Again, thank you very much for being on the hot aisle today. Uh, we we learned a lot. I learned a lot. I can't wait to actually listen to it again so I can reabsorb everything that you put out there because it was it was a lot, man. But uh, Andrew Clay Schaefer from Pivotal, um, on behalf of the hot aisle, thank you everyone for listening out there. Please be social. Uh, get at us on Twitter. Let us know how we're doing, what you like, what you didn't like. Um, my name is Brent Piotti. My name is Brian Carpenter. And I'm Andrew Schaefer, and, and thanks for having me, and uh, I'd love to come back. Yes, sir. All righty. Whoop.